I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Vic Bajaj has long lived at the intersection of physical sciences, engineering, data science, and the life sciences, first as an academic working to improve diagnostic imaging at Stanford University, and later as a chief scientific officer at Grail and Verily. Now, as founder and CEO of Foresight Labs, the technologist-turned-venture capitalist is using his experience to create new companies that are leveraging AI and other technologies to transform healthcare. We spoke to Bajaj about the changing data landscape around healthcare, the potential for technology to improve health outcomes, and what it takes for an entrepreneur to get his attention today. Vic, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again, Danny. I'm uh, very glad to be here. We're going to talk about data, preventative care, and how these forces are transforming healthcare. Before we do that, though, I, I thought it might be useful to discuss your career a bit and how your work led to Foresight Capital today. Most recently, you were the chief scientific officer at Grail, which is focused on early cancer detection. You were also the co-founder and former chief scientific officer of Verily, which is using data to deliver precision care. All of that, in addition to your deep academic background and work to develop more sensitive diagnostics and bioinformatic tools. As you think about your own career, how is the data landscape around healthcare changing and what's this enabling us to do either better or differently? It's a it's a it's a great question, Danny. And um, if I if I reflect on it, when I left academia and I was uh, very much set on an academic career, uh, as you alluded to, it was to go to Google. It was before Verily existed, and it was at a time in the history of our field um, where we were just starting as a community to put together very large cancer data sets after maybe 20 years of hearing about the concept of systems biology, it was finally becoming possible to understand cancer in terms of the genetic and molecular drivers of disease. And um, that promised to open up a whole new world of possibilities, uh, new ways of diagnosis, new prognostic tools, new therapeutics that are focused on the genetic drivers that were actually causing cancer to begin with, and eventually even early detection, the notion that we could harness all of this knowledge to intervene in a disease process early. So that's panned out, of course, in many ways over the last decade. But um, in the early days of that journey in biomedicine, it was entirely dependent on very large data sets that were difficult to collect, in some cases requiring, you know, nation state sponsored efforts to do so, or at least very large big science consortia. 
And for the most part, the analysis was very conventional and laborious and manual. And uh, what I realized in going to Google or what I predicted and um, took longer than I thought to, to happen is really that the tools that Google had developed for completely different purposes would end up being the most impactful tools in the arsenal of modern science. And those are tools to make sense of, to gather, to arrange, to analyze very, very large data sets. Um, and, uh, you know, over the last decade, there have been some really tantalizing, I would say, demonstrations of these possibilities in biology and medicine, and most actually have borrowed directly from things that the technology industry has developed for completely different purposes. Uh, examples come to mind, things like image analysis, using deep learning applied from everything to radiology, to digital pathology, to genomics. Those are all impactful applications that have reached a commercial state. Uh, we've seen more recently approaches to just grand challenges in structural biology in which we can predict structure from sequence. You know, when I was a PhD student, solving a structure was still a PhD project um, and uh, it is not any longer. And now we even see the reverse that you can go entirely in silico from a desired function. What is the function that you want to achieve and generate chemical matter that has the right structure and that structure confers on it, you know, all the right biophysical and drug-like properties to be a useful therapeutic. So that spectrum of data and use of those data, I think have changed very dramatically over the last decade. But I would say that people have not entirely translated or assembled those methods yet effectively into new product development paradigms. I mean, they're just starting to do that. And I think that very important companies will be created from just practicing well what uh, exists today. Um, and uh, the time is ready to do that. Uh, we can also discuss, uh, if you'd like, you know, what's coming over the horizon. Um, but I uh, definitely think that what exists today is really ripe for translation. Well, I, I'd certainly love to hear your thoughts on what's coming up over the horizon later in the discussion. Before we get there, though, you know, there's long been this belief that we're heading towards uh, an era of personalized care, of precision care, moving from from treatments to prevention. Where do you think we are in making progress towards that? I, I think often when we discuss this, um, we forget that some of the greatest advances in health have already come through prevention. Um, and they come either by detecting disease early, um, as in the case with some cancers, or actually just by detecting disease risk and intervening, say, in uh, cardiovascular disease uh, with drugs or behavioral changes that reduce the risk, whether it's quitting smoking uh, or um, putting someone on statins. And of course, a generation before that, the concept of prevention in infectious disease through sanitation and vaccines. I mean, these are the things that are associated with enormous numbers of lives saved, and they're very important. So we're already kind of in that era. 
And if you look at the top things that actually kill people or are associated with morbidity and mortality, um, I think we're we're closer to that scientifically than most people think. And we're probably further from that in a business and product development sense than uh, many people think. Uh, so to just give some examples, you know, one um, uh, that obviously uh, I was close to is, is Grail. At Grail, we tried to engage with the idea that if we could just detect most cancers early, um, that we would save a lot of lives. But as logical as that sounds, it's actually a debatable idea. It's one that requires proof. And collecting that proof is an enormous undertaking. So first of all, cancer is not just one disease, it's many diseases with unique patterns of genetic and other rearrangements that drive the disease. So if you so if you notion to capture all cancer, then it means that you have to have a database to train your classifier uh, that really is exhaustive relative to all the cancers that you want to detect, contains many examples of them. That's not uh, a small feat um, to develop. And then if you really want to develop a product that treats or detects many cancers early, you also have to create a product that detects the site of origin of that cancer uh, because um, you, know, you, you can't subject the patient to a really bad diagnostic odyssey. Uh, and then you have to prove that all of that works. And in order to prove that it works, um, though many people die of cancer at any one time, if you're looking at someone over a year or two, there's only a very, very small fleeting chance that that person will get cancer. So to prove that this works, you actually have to monitor many, many healthy people and watch them over time to see if you are actually detecting cancers early and if doing so really saves lives. So the notion scientifically is very sound, uh, but to actually build that out in a product sense required a lot of funding uh, and a clinical trial, uh, the size of which, you know, it's just much larger than other things that have been attempted in oncology, touching hundreds of thousands of people. So that's an example where a philosophically simple notion to really reach the market takes an enormous effort. And then after that evidence is generated, of course, there's a question of how to convince people to pay for it. So these things are scientifically, again, I would say way ahead of where most people think they are, but it doesn't um, uh, solve the problems of commercialization and evidence generation. Um, you know, to cite another example, uh, take uh, human genetics, something that um, is uh, very important. Uh, you'd think very old as a discipline, but take five years ago, someone receiving a genetic test, you know, in an unselected population, um, had a far less than 1% chance of getting an actionable result, something that improves medical care. But now because we can use uh, machine learning approaches to really understand how all the variation in the genome contributes to a disease risk rather than looking at one or two or three genes at a time, I would argue that 75% of people or more even would receive something actionable. So, I mean, think about how that changes things, that a simple test 
costing less than $100 could tell a patient about your lifetime predisposition and lifetime risks of 30 or 40 diseases easily with a high degree of validation, ranging from cancer to cardiovascular disease. And if you had that information, what the physician could actually do with that sort of information. Uh, but bringing that to market requires that we interact with a very stolid healthcare system, one that's slow to change, uh, often rightly slow to change. Um, and so the science is there. The genius is as much in how that science reaches the market and benefits the patient as it is in uh, developing um, the uh, the science in the first place. You know, a third area that I think actually is going to materialize sooner. Uh, it's interesting. It's 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 much less glamorous. Um, so, you know, my my mother, for example, is a physician, and the toolkit that she uses is barely changed since uh, I was a, a a child visiting her primary care practice, and now it is changing. We actually have a lot of tools from the world of ML to make each individual physician much more efficient in the way that she delivers care, ultimately um, personalizing care, making care more precise, generating elements of the care plan in automatic ways. Um, but that trend is reaching the market uh, far sooner and is more aligned with market forces that drive practice efficiency. But I'm pretty convinced that you know over the next five years, the combination of molecular medicine uh, with all of those other things, uh, that that's going to really result in transformative approaches to healthcare where um, care is really delivered to the personalized needs of the patient in a, in a precise way uh, that's uh, simply impossible today. 10 years ago, uh, we would have been talking about the potential of harnessing big data. Today, you'd hear it in terms of AI. How do you see AI enabling our ability to gain insights into the world of data that's swimming all around healthcare? And do you see that translating into better outcomes or more affordable care? Um, I mean, it's interesting. One uh, element of the tech world's success is that every interaction uh, of a user with, with a product that you're producing actually generates some kind of data. And then those data sets can be quite large. You can harness them to personalize the product experience to the needs of the individual consumer. Uh, and at the very least, you can gather that data over time, over many years, and use it to train new things that produce new products. So that uh, fabric of data and freely available data um, has been core to the tech experience and the growth of the technology industry. Uh, we don't really do anything like that in healthcare yet. There's a tremendous amount of data um, as you pointed out, um, but we're just at the early stages of harnessing it to do things that are useful. So what can we do that's useful today? Well, uh, certainly product developers in biotech and pharma companies can use those data to understand what the patient experience is of having a disease, what's important to the patient, can understand which physicians are most likely to prescribe new treatments and improve care 
and which ones may need more education about the relative utility versus cost of those treatments. They can also understand how to most efficiently recruit patients for clinical trials, um, and that ultimately leads to innovative products getting on the market faster. I think the next generation is really in harnessing those data to do things that benefit the patient and the consumer experience of the patient as a, as a healthcare consumer. And, uh, you know, a, a small subset of patients can get this kind of experience through expensive concierge care, but technology and the broad availability of data together with some of the molecular medicine approaches that I was describing before are going to democratize a lot of that and make it available um, to patients broadly. Um, I would say that we are just at the very start of harnessing that kind of, the, the, the large amounts of data that exist for that kind of purpose. And uh, often what you hear about most, it kind of reflects a, a, a technology industry mental model of the patient experience where the patient is involved in some really complicated diagnostic process, something that you'd only see on TV, uh, you know, followed by a, a miracle cure for uh, his disease. And that's not what the healthcare system needs. It needs much more the personalization of healthcare based on risk um, and uh, in a way that allows us to deliver more care, more care, more efficiently, but also to intervene very early in a risk trajectory of a disease with a treatment that greatly reduces the risk of the disease actually being manifest. So it's less, in my opinion, about diagnosing something um, that the healthcare system actually does fairly well in many cases or most cases. It's more about understanding a patient's risk and targeting care, harnessing limited resources in a precise and personalized way. And I think um, we're just at the beginning of that trajectory, uh, even, by the way, in oncology, uh, which uh, has been uh, ahead of every uh, other therapeutic area. It, it would seem like the combination of electronic health records and artificial intelligence would, would enable that. Is that the case? I think it's part of what would enable it. Uh, there are, uh, there's no question that the electronic health record contains way more information than is summarized about a patient um, in just notes or that's available uh, to a physician with limited time in, in treating the patient. So from the EHR, you should be able to understand and the information around the EHR, prescription, billing, all kinds of other uh, information that is the detritus of healthcare delivery that, that's, that's almost collected, amalgamated automatically today. You should be able to understand a lot more about the patient. What are the risks? What are the diagnoses? How has the patient been treated according to the best evidence-based standard of care? And we have the ability now to automate all of that analysis and to deliver to the physician a blueprint about what to do next. My belief, though, is that very often or very soon, what to do next will be some kind of molecular test, whether it's a genetic test that affordably tells uh, the physician about a patient's real risks of disease that leads to things like enhanced cancer screening or a focus on managing dyslipidemias um, and other preventable um, consequences of an underlying illness. Um, or 
whether it uh, results in just watchful waiting, that's going to be the new standard of care where we take everything that we know about the patient and decide through these very high leverage diagnostic approaches, what's to do next? What's the best next piece of information, the most cost-effective and the one that will be uh, most impactful in the patient's care? I think we're really at the beginning of that. Parts of it sound like science fiction, I realize, but all of the technology to do that and to do that affordably uh, is here today. it's really just a matter of putting it together in the right business model. Yeah, as I think about your own career projection, your arrival at Foresight makes perfect sense to me, but I'm wondering how you saw that aligning with the work you've done throughout your career. So for one thing, you know, I got to know Jim Tannenbaum, the founder of our firm uh, through Grail, uh, and uh, has really been a mentor to me as I entered um, what's a very different space than actually operating companies. And, um, you know, I, I came with the notion that um, the rate of change of all of the things that I care about in our industry, they're some of the things, Danny, that we've been talking about. It's so high right now. And it was a few years ago when I came to Foresight but it's still a fragile time. There's untested business models. Um, there's very few people who have actually developed products using uh, these new technologies. There's more now, but it's still, you know, product development cycles in our field are so long um, that that generation of people is still uh, midstream. Uh, and so I thought that there would be real influence in the field by understanding how to deploy capital to the most credible and catalytic efforts in the space, the ones that would benefit patients most quickly and most completely. Um, so that's why I decided to look at the investment world. And then what really attracted me to Foresight is that Jim had assembled a team of people who really have a lot of experience developing products. And I believe that the new paradigm, new ways of doing things they really have to coexist with existing patterns of product development. And that often very early on, you decide what is real and what's not through incremental rather than wholesale application of new approaches and new technologies. You see in a space full of an enormous amount of noise, where is their real signal? Where are there things that can be harnessed to accelerate the development of medicines or um, the deployment of new healthcare uh, approaches? Um, and I thought that foresight, um, you know, was unique in its multidisciplinary emphasis and multidisciplinary culture. So that's what I saw uh, in foresight. And that's what Jim had uh, explicitly sought to uh, set up since the founding of the firm in 2011. I'd argue a lot of venture investors are becoming more hands-on today, but I think of foresight as being a little unusual in both the clarity of its vision around what's come to be called tech bio and the way it leverages technologies it's nurturing within its broader portfolio and even looks across companies to fertilize them. How does Foresight think about its role with the technologies and companies it backs? And how do you think about opportunities that may exist between the companies you back? It's it's a great question. And, um, 
to begin with, obviously, we do not control these companies. It's the entrepreneurs that rightly control them. And um, they uh, have a vision for their companies that we would never compromise. That said, we do have a long-term vision and the expression of that long-term vision related to the new data economy and healthcare, the new ways in which machine learning is transforming product development, you know, that doesn't come about in a monolithic way. So we've, for example, invested in companies that are both producing data in fundamental ways, new measurement platforms or new platforms for aggregating data from the healthcare system and companies like therapeutics companies that are consuming data. Um, those therapeutic companies, they may follow very conventional product development technologies, but we can help them in places where they want to embrace what is new and coming. You know, a great example, and there are many examples of this, are the idea that in common diseases like autoimmune disease and cardiovascular disease, we can now, for the first time, have approaches in clinical trials which are more oncology-like in that we select patients whose genetics or other factors predispose them to responding to this mechanism uh, of intervention in the disease. So that's an example where we may broker uh, relationships between companies or help them. Um, but it's always done in a way that um, is uh, respectful of the core uh, product development strategy that each company is uh, uh, is targeting. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear the way you use the word product and and talk about products because within the the life sciences world, you know, most investors think of the drug as the product, and there's not a lot of thought about products and how a an end user would would use them and how it fits into a broader market. Uh, Foresight doesn't just back companies, but also engages in company creation. You're a co-founder and CEO of Foresight Labs, which incubates startups. How do you know you've got a company rather than a compelling technology or product? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, a company has to be built from compelling products that people want to buy. And uh, that sounds simple, but the real answer is that we don't know for sure, of course, until a company's product reaches some kind of market, which is ultimately a patient market uh, or a research market, you know, depending on the kind of company. So our job is to handicap that. And that's not easy. It has to do with the science. It has to do with the execution. And it has to do with leading indicators of both of those uh, where the company is simply too early uh, for us to judge that with any kind of authority or certainty. So that um, is not based on a formula, but it's really, is the product vision there? Does it exist or is it just a flirtation with new science and technology? That's really important to us. It actually may cause us to miss some things because we're really focused on understanding paths to market, even for very compelling science and very compelling technologies, but but that's our pattern. Um, and then is there a team behind it, the team including uh, the founders, the management team, the other investors around the table and their appetite for the product development trajectory that the company is likely to take? 
um, and their uh, level of support for the team and also their level of independent critical thought um, about where the company should go. So those are factors that help us de-risk the path to market, uh, but obviously uh, it's, uh, it's imperfect. And I would say in very few cases have we invested in something merely because it's a compelling technology or uh, scientifically compelling. There's almost always another set of factors that leads us to believe that within a reasonable amount of time, like the cycle of a fund, that compelling science or technology will be translated into something that benefits patients or benefits science. If you're wearing your Foresight Labs hat, how might you think differently or or analyze an investment differently than you would as a traditional venture investor? Well, within Foresight Labs, we are generally creating companies. And those companies are um, really shepherded, moved forward by people who are on the team. And so we're really looking for um, insights into big areas uh, where there's enormous rate of change and we have some angle, some missing need in the market uh, that we think justifies the creation of a new company. And there's people on the platform with a great deal of experience in very innovative companies uh, like our chief scientific officer, Rick Dewey, our chief technical officer, uh, Alex Blocker, our chief clinical officer, Ian Tong. Each of them in their domains have been in a number of innovative companies and understand the markets um, and what's missing and what can be impacted by new ideas and new technologies. So fundamentally, if the rest of the world is doing it well, uh, we would not seek to create a company in that area. Uh, that's something where we would want to invest in the great work that other people are doing. And I would say in any area, we see, um, you know, enormous, well-run, beautiful efforts that are investable. Uh, so it's actually very hard for us to find things that we want to do where there's a level of uniqueness and a level of impact that justifies us creating a company. Uh, but we've done that in several cases. You joined Foresight at the end of 2017. It was a time when the financing environment was quite different. How have the conversations you have with entrepreneurs looking to raise money changed in terms of the discussions you have with them and, and the way you view their potential? They've changed in terms of emphasis uh, rather than wholesale in terms of the content. Uh, I mean, one thing that's clear, it's very hard for companies that are um, not articulating clear product visions to raise the amount of money they need um, to support platform development alone, to sustain that. It's become hard. Uh, obviously, our companies are doing that, but um, it is much more difficult than it was, say, um, you know, two years ago, three years ago. Uh, so a lot of our conversations are to make sure, actually, that the company has enough money to reach milestones. Uh, and I, I'm sorry if this seems pedestrian in uh, contrast to the 
sort of high science we were discussing before, but a company has to reach milestones with the funding that it is uh, taking in that are generally recognized as valuable milestones. So we're focused quite a bit more on those fundamentals. What are you going to do with this funding round? And how does that enhance your prospects of continuing the company to raise more money, ideally in a, 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 a foundation that entrepreneurs, uh, uh, it's consistent with the entrepreneur's plan, but which other investors would unambiguously recognize as valuable. So we spend as much time now on those financing trajectories as we do on analyzing the uh, basic product development uh, and the science behind what is going on. So that's changed, not again, wholesale, but it's changed in emphasis. It's been a difficult time to to raise money if you're a, a, a biotech entrepreneur. There seems to be a lot of capital on the sidelines ready to be deployed. What advice would you give an entrepreneur looking to raise money to how to best increase their odds of getting the attention of someone like yourself? Well, for one thing, um, and I know there are a variety of views on this, but I think largely we are in a service profession. It's our job to serve the entrepreneurs, to support their dreams, and to understand what they want and whether or not we are the best partners to uh, bring it to life with them or to help them bring it to life. So we don't run these companies we don't make the decisions on behalf of the entrepreneurs. And if they can't get our attention, it's a real uh, failing uh, on our part. So that said, you know, to get an investment, um, the terms have not changed. We focus on the fundamentals, the science, the product development, the people, um, and the likelihood that the company would be able to raise money under favorable circumstances when the money it's raised has been used uh, to reach some intermediate milestones. And I would say that those conversations before, say two years ago, might be short. Now often we are engaged with entrepreneurs, maybe even over months to really help define what's going on, what could the syndicate be, what is our opinion on product development possibilities, and we spend a lot of time cultivating that interactive dialogue to get to the right place. Um, and I think that's a little different than it was two years ago uh, when uh, many of these deals were, were much more uh, transactional. Now they involve a partnership where together we're trying to figure out how to get this funded and how to make sure that, it, that it's actually secure and nurtured uh, in a way that um, allows it to grow. I know there are some constraints on your ability to discuss specifics, but I'm wondering if you can walk through your decision process on whether or not to make an investment and and ground that in some examples. Well, you're quite correct that there are restrictions on what we can say in terms of examples while we are raising a new fund. Uh, so I apologize that I can't be too specific. But I think, um, you know, if you look at the themes that we've discussed, even in this conversation, the idea that larger and larger data sets are fueling through machine learning approaches, principally, 
new product development paradigms and that that's resulting in efficient development of products, but also new ways to deliver healthcare to patients, then there's a lot within that that we can invest in that points to companies that we have invested in. So one category is just the basic tools by which these data are generated in the first place. That includes everything from sequencing to single cell sequencing to new approaches to really interrogate biology. Um, then there's a host of companies that are actually aggregating these data to make them useful uh, either to drug discovery science or to even uh, clinical science and clinical development or healthcare delivery. Uh, there's a set of companies which are harnessing these new tools and technologies, whether from companies like Illumina or smaller companies that we've uh, invested in, but they're harnessing those data. They're harnessing those tools to conduct product development in the sense of therapeutic product development in unique ways, more efficient through stratified patient populations or targets that have a high degree of genetic validation um, and biological understanding. Um, and then finally, there's a category of companies that are harnessing this new data fabric and new technology fabric to actually deliver care to patients in more efficient ways. That could be broadly like in primary care, or it could be things like in oncology, where it's just so complicated that if you look at the standard of care that you receive as a patient in a uh, coastal academic medical center versus a rural community, there are on average enormous differences in the standard of care. Um, and those are all problems that uh, companies that we've invested in are approaching without going into examples. And they all follow from our belief that the way in which we develop products and deliver them to patients is going to be transformed by all of this new data and these new technologies. So that's a big theme for us across the portfolio. We've been early to it and measured, but its impact uh, as a percentage of companies that we invest in is growing with each fund cycle. You've had remarkable in vision into the way technology is evolving and changing. I'm, I'm wondering if anything's surprised you about the t the transformation of healthcare as technologies emerged and are put into real world use. What surprised me is how slow it's been compared to how fast I thought it would happen. If I'm to be self-reflective, I think that, you know, oftentimes um, it's been easy to overestimate the path for new technologies to impact product development or impact healthcare delivery. The science is so clear and the science is growing, but these industries have very well-established product development paradigms that in many cases are quite successful. And the question is, what is the tipping point what are the right business models that result in that tipping point? It obviously rewards patients. Um, I mean, there are great companies. Um, one that comes to mind is 23andMe that for the duration of its existence and has had her vision and that vision is certainly coming true in the field as a whole, but it's taken a lot longer than any of us have thought. So that's what surprised me. Um, is just a pace of innovation 
how much the pace of innovation outpaces, uh, if you will, uh, the actual translation into real products uh, that change things. Does that go back to what you were talking about at the top about the the need for establishing the data proof and and the fact that we're dealing with a highly regulated business environment for for healthcare? I would not say that it's due to regulation. I know uh, it, it's popular to uh, insult the regulator, but I think for the most part, uh, if you're talking about the FDA, the FDA's um, exist to serve patients. Its criteria are exceedingly clear, um, you know, and with notable exceptions, actually aligned with the needs of industry. Uh, yes, it can take a lot of time to generate evidence and money for big, big ideas uh, like we did at Grail, uh, but it's also a healthy process that protects patients and is necessary. So the barriers that I see are more, you know, business model barriers. Um, how often are even very well-funded companies in the pharma space, as an example, really testing new approaches to product development? What is the scope of an individual leader within that kind of organization to upend what is working successfully and is delivering value in favor of something new, uh, as an example? And then on the healthcare side, there is a fear not necessarily driven by regulation, but a fear of what you don't know, a fear of actually causing harm or increasing costs. Um, as an example, and we discussed this a great deal uh, in the UK context, um, if you were to deliver genetic tests to an entire population, what would that do to the downstream cost of care? Would those patients want uh, diagnostic tests that are unnecessary just because they're at mildly elevated risk as determined by genetics for some condition. And uh, that worry, the answer to that worry is always to try the experiment. And almost always the experiment has worked out in favor of the new technology or new approach. And certainly that's in the interests of patients, but the inertia of the system to actually try it and to sustainably explore new ways of doing things, um, that's a real uh, barrier. Uh, and I think has slowed down the, 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 the pace uh, of healthcare transformation, but has not abolished it. It's still coming. And that wasn't a slide at regulators, but really to, to speak to a level of evidence that's necessary to get past a, a critical threshold. Yeah, because the, the, the evidence, you know, has to be, does it work, obviously? Does it cause harm? Because we forget that everything in medicine has the potential to cause harm. Um, and then third, is it cost effective? Because if it is not cost effective, then at the level of a healthcare system, which is starved for resources, it may still cause harm. So those are, you know, successively higher standards of evidence efficacy, safety, uh, and uh, health economics, um, that new interventions, especially in healthcare delivery, have to reach. And um, that's not a low barrier. What do you see as the biggest challenge to putting all of the data that's within reach to beneficial use? Is it accessing that data? 
interpreting it in an actionable way or is it on the adoption side and getting patients, payers, drug companies and, and regulators to think and act differently? Well, so if we take a step back, one question is, what do you want to use the data for? So um, if we really look at the potential impact of new machine learning methods that are really capable of delivering superhuman insights into phenomena, uh, even in biology, they really have to be fueled by data that integrates over all of the complexity in biology, which is complexity in space. We operate on all these different length scales from the length scales of small molecules interacting with proteins to protein-protein interactions to entire cells to cells interacting and communicating, in fact, with one another to organize themselves into tissues um, to then physiology and the entire organism and clinical phenomena. Those are very complicated things that really, if you look at it, there's very few data sets that integrate over all of those biological length scales in a way that would let you use a machine learning model to ask general questions about biology, uh, like what is causing this disease or what is the effect if I intervene in this pathway on that disease? And there's also questions of time. You know, generally, when we collect these big data sets, there's one or a few time points uh, and um, not time points that are relevant over the course of an illness. Some of these diseases that we care about most, like neurodegenerative disease, they can start or they can have a disease prodrome that lasts for decades. So what is actually happening over time and what is happening over all levels of biological organization? If we had those data, then I believe we'd have a very good chance of really training machine learning algorithms that could change the way that we do biomedical research, making it much more a discipline of engineering than it is now. So we don't have all those data yet, uh, although there are attempts to assemble data sets of that source sort both in industry and uh, in the uh, national government funded space. And with the data that we do have, um, there's data sets that governments assemble uh, like uh, the UK Biobank, for example, or what we've done uh, at uh, Genomics England um, that are really built to fuel research. And these are data sets where you take a set of people numbering in the hundreds of thousands or millions and steady them in detail to understand how they experience their medical lives, health and disease, and the transition from health and disease and back hopefully to health once treated. So those are big studies that their, their whole purpose is to put out data. So there's a lot of data within reach um, and there's a lot more that's coming but we're not yet at the point where we have all the data that we want, of course, and we're not yet at the point where every interaction of the patient with the healthcare system, back to the analogy that I made before about the tech industry, results in data that are harnessed to improve product development. So the really low-hanging fruit is to take all the data that results from a patient's journey in the healthcare system from birth to death put it together in a way, along with these genetic and molecular measurements, in a way that's natural. 
that happens in the real world in the course of delivering care and living one's life. And if we could do that, then the amount of data created would be just exponentially greater than what's happening today. Now, there's many challenges to doing that. There are still some minor technology challenges, but not major ones. But there are privacy challenges, I think not insurmountable. Uh, and there's a question of cost. Who would pay to do this? Um, which I believe, you know, again, going back to the UK examples, most countries that are ahead, and believe it or not, your audience may not know this, but most of the world's biomedical data of this sort that is really useful for the kinds of research that we're talking about actually still comes from the UK. It's because the government feels that it is a national resource that will drive competitiveness in biomedical research. And that's a position that's been held by multiple successive governments of uh, each political party. Um, so that long-term support to gather these big data sets in the course of delivering clinical care, we don't have that in the U.S. yet. And I think it's um, a question of uh, the uh, political support and industrial support to do that. But if we would do that, then it would really fuel the revolution that we see coming in healthcare. Vikram Bajaj, Managing Director of Foresight Capital and co-founder and CEO of Foresight Labs. Vic, thanks as always. Thank you, Danny. It's been uh, great uh, to be with you again. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it. 